Some of you may uh, remember, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, we actually did a leadership roundtable on the subject of education. Uh, but a lot has happened since then, and uh, the way in which we uh, addressed it uh, a year and a half ago is somewhat different from the way we're going to be tackling it today, and also we hope that we'll be able to bring you up to date with certain things and certain developments, and also by the end of the day, offer certain strategies as to how we can um, respond. But I want to kick off today uh, with an important uh, theological or uh, descriptive, worldview descriptive of the place of education in the life of the Christian and in the history of the Christian church. One of the challenges of speaking about Christian education to Christians today is that it is often seen as a peripheral or secondary matter at best. And it's not typically seen as one of the core implications of the gospel in terms of the kingdom purposes of God. I want to suggest to you, though, that it is actually uh, the direction of the gospel. The direction of the gospel moves us inescapably towards a holistic Christian education. Now, when we use the term the gospel, it's important to recognize that it is, the gospel is so regularly truncated in our time, it's sort of narrowed into a funnel, that it means little more to many people than personal forgiveness of sins and a place in heaven. Ask the average Christian to summarize the gospel, and they'll tell you something about their forgiveness of their own sins and the fact that they are going to heaven. But Paul the Apostle actually writes, he says, for from him, this is Christ, and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. In Colossians 1, 16, the Apostle Paul writes, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. And then in both Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, we're actually told that redemption, salvation, is about the reconciliation of all things to God. That sounds quite a bit bigger than the forgiveness of my personal sins and a place in heaven, doesn't it? When you actually look at what Paul says about the meaning of the gospel and the meaning of reconciliation, it encompasses, of course, forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of heaven, but it is much more than that. John Barber has written, he says, people tend to restrict Christ's death to payment for the sins of his people at Calvary, but what his blood also purchased is a new creation. God will renew the lower parts of the creation because Christ paid the price of its redemption. Because Christ created the cosmos for his purposes and glory, his blood supplies nothing less than the foundation for cosmic redemption. Now, I think that's a far more biblical statement about the meaning of the gospel than, well, Jesus forgave my sins and I'm going to heaven. That's a small aspect of it. Christ's coming, you see, actually contested Satan's illegitimate claim of ownership over the earth. If you look at Matthew 12, 29, that's what we see there. 
that Christ is challenging an illegitimate claimant to authority in the earth. And he asserts his power to overcome satanic authority and to destroy the devil's kingdom in all creation. Now, if that is the work of Christ, then it is our work as well. If that was his purpose, it must be our purpose. Now, we'll we'll come to the relevance of all of this to education for a moment, but there's little point in talking about the details of education if we still don't see it as germane to the gospel. If we don't see it as central to the life of the church in the gospel, we won't bring education and the issues facing us in education to the forefront of our consideration. Now, man's God-given dominion over the earth at the beginning of Scripture that we all know about in the book of Genesis develops throughout history in relationship to the unfolding of the gospel of the kingdom. So there is a connection between what man was made for at the beginning. If Christ is both creator and redeemer, there's a connection between the mandate given to man to rule and subdue and have dominion at the beginning and the unfolding of the gospel of the kingdom that we see throughout the New Testament. Now, the Hebrew word for cultivate that we find in Genesis 2.15 is abad, which means to work and serve, to work and to serve. The English word cultivate has a Latin root, culturare, and it means cultivator or planter, and it's our root for the word culture. So when we talk about culture... This is actually what we're talking about. We're going right back to the book of Genesis and the mandate to work and to serve. So God's primeval command in the garden to cultivate the earth is much more than an agricultural commission. I mean, we tend to read that as some sort of primitive statement about agriculture. It isn't. Of course, it's related to agriculture, but it's much more than that. It was an intergenerational command for history to shape each area of life according to God's will and purpose. Now, of course, it had humble beginnings in in an agrarian society, of course, but it led to the development of the Earth's resources and worldwide civilization very quickly. In fact, we see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, worldwide civilization developing, metallurgy, animal husbandry, uh, and eventually... Uh, a sophisticated tower building and, and, and a drive towards a global culture under one language, under one religious purpose, which happened to be a rebellious one. We haven't got time to go there. But the dominion mandate covers all creation because the earth is the Lord's. That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And it has to be developed in terms of his will and his purposes. That was true right from the beginning. That wasn't an, it wasn't an afterthought that we should serve the purposes of God's kingdom. It was true from the very beginning. Now, of course, the complication and the reason we're here today is that man fell into sin and ruin with the fall. And he perverted the mandate that God had given to him. But that did not dispense with the mandate to work under God. The entrance of sin into the world did not destroy or remove the purpose of man's creation and his mandate in the earth. In fact, God promises in Genesis 3.15 a promise that is expanded and developed throughout Scripture. And what is that? You all know it, I trust. It was the promise of a deliverer, a man who would come and be the source of restoration and deliverance for creation. And this is the ABC of the gospel. 
this deliverer would come and bring about restoration. Well, the restoration of what? Restoration of man to his kingdom purposes under God. The restoration of man from sin and the curse. Now, the Old Testament is the story of a people being called out, saved, and delivered to serve that purpose of deliverance. They were to guard the promises, and they were to protect the seed of the woman. Because, of course, the seed of the woman emerges through Abraham and eventually through the Davidic line, through Judah, uh, to the birth of Christ. The Hebrews' deliverance from Egypt, um, and I didn't actually consult with Russ about his Egypt references this morning, so that was very helpful. The actual deliverance of the Hebrews from that place of slavery and bondage was the paradigmatic event that pictured deliverance from sin, Satan, and death in the Old Testament, so that God's people could obey and serve God and enter into his promised inheritance. That was the paradigmatic event that the Hebrews always looked back to as the picture of their deliverance. And the New Testament makes the express link between the Exodus and the deliverance from Egypt with our salvation. God's people were released so that they could obey and serve God and enter into his inheritance, which at that time was Canaan. Now, Gerhardus Voss notes it of this event. He says, first of all, redemption is here portrayed as, before anything else, deliverance from an objective realm of sin and evil. The Exodus, which sometimes is later spiritualized by people, was, first of all, an objective deliverance of a people who were in historic cultural bondage to a pagan order, they were delivered, before anything else can be said about it, from a realm of sin and evil. They were a people called out to create a kingdom culture that had been ruled over by a fallen culture and an alien power under Pharaoh. So by delivering his people from Egypt, God showed himself not only the savior of his son Israel, out of Egypt I have called my son, but as the redeemer of culture. And he established Israel as the model culture of the ancient world. The Bible is explicit about that, that they would be a light to the nations, and that by looking at Israel and looking at the way the Hebrews lived and looking at their law, all the nations would look and say, who has a God like their God? Who has laws so just and righteous as their laws? So that Israel would be a light to the pagan world. That was their calling. Now, this background is critical because Scripture is a unity, and all the key doctrines of Scripture are actually present in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All the core doctrines of the Bible are right there. They all get developed and fleshed out as the progress of God's eschatological purposes unfold through history. Now, the implication of the unity of Scripture means that there are not two separate mandates in the Bible that Christians typically think about, that somehow we've got to find some way of fudging them and joining them together. One is about cult, the cultural mandate, and the other is about evangelism. So Christians typically think in dualistic terms, that there's something, some bizarre thing about the culture at the beginning, but now basically what we're about is evangelism. You know, our task is simply to tell people about Jesus so that they too can have their sins forgiven and go to heaven. And very often, the work of evangelism is limited in those terms as well. One is thought to be about personal and spiritual renewal, 
And then there's this different one about creation. We're not really quite sure how it all fits. Well, actually, biblically, because of the unity of Scripture and because all the great doctrines of the Bible are present in those first 11 chapters, the Christian's great commission that we like to talk about, and let's, let's recall the great commission for a moment, all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus said, is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you, and I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. Now, that great commission is present in seed form in the cultural mandate to subdue and rule, to work and keep in terms of the kingdom purposes of God. In short, what I'm saying is that the road beginning with what we call the cultural mandate in Genesis leads directly to the Great Commission, Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now, let me help you see that for a moment. Our Lord, the great deliverer, has come. So the promised deliverer of Genesis 3.15 arrives in history, having been kept through the seed of the woman being kept throughout the life of the nation of Israel. And Jesus ascends up onto the mountain where he expounds the law of God as the greater Moses. And then he is sacrificed as our Passover, the Bible says, Paul the Apostle writes, at the cross. Christ, our Passover, Paul says, is sacrificed for us. And then he accomplishes our exodus at the resurrection. In fact, that's explicitly stated because when Moses and Elijah are on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, they discuss the exodus in the Greek there, the exodus he was about to accomplish. So the Bible sees the resurrection of Jesus as the accomplishment of the exodus, the deliverance of his people in history. And then finally, at the Great Commission, he sends out his church, he commissions his church to go with him, to go with him to claim their inheritance, not of a small strip of land in Palestine, but of the whole earth, and to establish his kingdom there, to work and to keep. So unlike the Jewish people who were sent out to their inheritance of Canaan, Christ, who says, I am with you, goes with us. He leads us forth into our inheritance, which the Bible says is the whole earth. In other words, the Great Commission, which requires the teaching and discipleship of all nations, is thus what the, well, it requires teaching and discipleship in the nations and the creation, by definition, therefore, of new cultures, because if you teach and disciple people to follow Christ, what you create is a new culture. You redeem culture because you redeem people. So when nations are discipled, new cultures emerge, Christian cultures emerge. So what we actually see is that the Great Commission is what the cultural mandate looks like after the resurrection. The Great Commission is what the cultural mandate looks like after the resurrection of Jesus. From the beginning of history, God had called to himself a spiritual body to govern as vice-regents all he had created, establishing his magisterial rights in every area of life, in all parts of society. And the discipleship of the nations now is the final phase of filling and subduing in terms of God's purposes. It's the last phase because the second Adam, the deliverer, has come. And he commissions us into this last phase of God's purposes in his history. Now, I start there because that is the scope of the gospel. That's the scope of the gospel. 
And I think one of the primary problems we face in the Western church today is that we have lost the scope of the gospel. And it's a consequence of that that we have lost or abandoned the education mandate and other mandates that are ours in God's word. These are not separate stories or categories of reality, you see. Creation and redemption are not two separate things that, well, we've got this mess of a creation, but thank goodness God is saving us spiritually out of the world. Rather, in Scripture, creation and redemption are a continuum. In fact, Paul the Apostle is plain that the creation itself groans, waiting our our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that it's the new creation, and the new creation begins with your regeneration, with the resurrection of Christ. Any man who is in Christ is a new creature, Scripture says. So what we're talking about here is the new creation, creation and redemption. In fact, the segregation of a lower creation from a higher creation has always been a hallmark of pagan, not biblical thought. So the idea that, well, what God is interested in is saving my soul so I can go to heaven is a pagan idea, not a biblical idea, because otherwise the physical resurrection of Jesus would not have been necessary. Nor would the healing miracles of Jesus have been necessary. They all pointed to the restoration of creation, his authority over all creation, his redemption and reconciliation of all creation to himself. That's the gospel. In biblical faith, St. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself a few things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul connects the cross with the reconciliation of all things to Christ. Christ's work of reconciliation, which Paul says is a message committed to us, is our work, and it extends to everything. So that... I believe, is a basic statement of the nature of the gospel. Now now we can start to talk about education as a core implication of the gospel of Christ. The expansion of the gospel by by, uh, Christian education has been a critical mandate, given this theological background, taken very seriously by Christians, typically as an aspect of their calling and work as God's people in history. It's only been in recent times that Christians have not seen it that way. In fact, the family was the first educational institution amongst the Hebrews, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 makes clear. Mother and father taught the children the law of God, the word of God. It was memorized and while that was going on, the son was typically apprenticed in his father's trade. That was the beginnings of what we might call biblical education. The Levites functioned as teachers and educators as well, training both the priests and the people in God's law. That was the function of the Levite. They were actually the, the origins of teachers, educators in Christianity. After the Hebrews settled in Canaan, prophets began to teach the people as well. So you had the Levites and the prophets teaching God's people. Now, of course, if you were going to learn the law and memorize the law, it was obviously important that you could understand it and apply it, and that required reading. It's no surprise that the Hebrews were the inventors of universal education because their revelation was from God was not the pagan form of revelation by omens and uh, 
by um, uh, meditative techniques or by uh, uh, bizarre spiritual esoteric encounters. It was inscripturated word from God. That required reading, required de the development of knowledge. During and after the Babylonian exile, people were, the Hebrews were disjoint from the temple. And that created a problem for them educationally and for the Levites. So the synagogue arose, which you see appearing throughout the New Testament. And the synagogue developed a system of schools, giving Judaism a strong organizational and institutional basis. After instruction at home until the age of six, the children received teaching at the synagogue, and believe it or not, attendance was made compulsory from AD 64 by the order of the Jewish high priest in the last days of the temple, Joshua ben Gamala. So <clears throat> there was a long period of synagogue education, and as actually the Jewish people felt increasingly threatened toward just before the destruction of the temple, uh, attendance at synagogue for lessons, for teaching, for education was compulsory. The education was also free and universal, making elementary education available to all, regardless of their economic ability. This is unprecedented in the pagan world. Even class sizes were regulated as the students learned writing and arithmetic and mastered parts of the Psalms, the creation account, and the Levitical law. Actually, the book of Leviticus was the first subject that the Hebrew student actually learned. They also studied the Mishnah, which is the oral law, and the Talmud, which is the Mishnah, and the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. And actually, we see in the New Testament that the synagogues were very fertile soil for evangelism because Paul and the apostles almost always seek out first an opportunity in the synagogue in the book of Acts to preach. A very good example of that is in Acts 17, there in verse 11, uh, where he goes into the synagogue to uh, give witness to the gospel. And then with the diaspora of the Jews among the Greeks, the Jews also, the Hellenistic Jews, adopted uh, and adapted certain Greek educational practices to fit their educational purposes. So they adopted some of the pedagogy, some of the techniques, the Hellenistic Jews, that they found in the Greco-Roman world. Now in the early church, uh, for the Christian era now, the education of the Hebrews, the synagogue model, was largely adopted by Christians. Now, that's common sense, of course, because most of the early converts to the Christian faith, at least, were Jews, and the idea that a Jew would send his son to a pagan or his daughter to a pagan to be educated is unthinkable. And, of course, Jewish leadership of the church meant these values and ideas were inculcated among the Gentile churches. And so we see the development of Christian schools very early. The church in Alexandria, that's a city founded on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt by Alexander the Great, it developed a ministry of catechesis instruction from the very beginning. So the first mention of a Christian school there dates from the second century. So Christian schools aren't something that the Americans invented in the, in the 19th century. Some oh yeah, those fundamentalists down in the States, they do that kind of Christian school thing. This was something that was present from the, first, from the second century, and actually doubtless from the first century. It's the first record of it we have, is the second century. And in AD 179, Pantanus, a converted Stoic, developed a broad curriculum covering a, a wide array of subjects that actually proved critical in the historic development 
of Christian education. Moreover, all ages and both sexes were educated at this very early stage. Historians Reed and Prevost note concerning this school, I quote, students confronted Greco-Roman classics, philosophers and academic disciplines. They were equipped to converse with the most educated non-Christians. Such conversation was necessary to the propagation and preservation of the gospel. They were taught that there was nothing to fear from open and honest inquiry into all thought and that such inquiry could serve a missionary and apologetic purpose. Clement of Alexandria succeeded Pontanus as the head of the school between AD 190 and 200 so that you have this famous Christian leader, you remember the letters of Clement, uh, taking over this school at the end of the second century. And he added rhetoric to the curriculum And he was probably paid by what would have been voluntary fees and basically donations of wealthy patrons. So the early church didn't see the Christian school as a place to wrap up children in cotton wool to protect them from a nasty world. They saw them, they developed them to advance the gospel. They saw it as an implication of the gospel and Christ's lordship over all things that education should be Christ-centered and that young people should be equipped to take on pagan idolatry, and ready to engage in every aspect of life. Now, with the eventual legalization of Christianity in the empire and Christians then being receiving their property back and so on, there were many benefits for Christian education. The institutional church, education, and government became more involved with each other as the early Middle Ages dawned. Some would say that wasn't uh, all a blessing. They're probably right. Um, But there was uh, an increasing uh, intermeshing of the life of the church, of the school, and of state authority. The early monasteries uh, were really the custodians then of education in the Western uh, tradition, and they required learning and the study of scripture. Monks not only read, but they copied manuscripts and calculated dates for festivals and so forth. There was an area in the monastery called the scriptorium. And they made books, and they copied scripture, and their work was, in fact, very highly specialized. Now, um, probably at this point, um, we may be seeing a sort of classist system of education developing. Uh, the, The early universal element to it may be dropping away, and education becoming associated too closely with clericalism. Um, But... Irrespective of the failures of the system, the monastery became critical to the future of education and, as we'll see, the university. So you had this scriptorium, and then you had the library, which was an educational facility in the monastery, and they accumulated hundreds of books, sometimes thousands of books. And many of these books were copied. Many of these titles were duplicates. They were collected. They were exchanged then through the work of the scriptorium. We still have libraries today. We still have public libraries. The monastery was the first public library. It is indisputable to say that monasteries produced many of the finest scholars of the Middle Ages. In fact, the leading thinkers of Western Europe received their education in the monastery for hundreds of years. Out of that was born the Christian university. That's still a pillar of uh, Western civilization, and it's certainly the highest achievement of medieval Europe, the development of the university. The origin of the university was essentially found in church schooling. So the monasteries 
did the work of preserving books, preserving knowledge, and the cathedral schools, that is, the headquarters of the diocese where the bishop presided, were the center of life with many different educational activities. Some parish priests established schools in the home and other places, and those became known as parish schools. Now, parish schools still operate in England today. In fact, many of the Church of England schools remain, even though they're part of the what you would call the public system, remain the very best schools because they've got some association with the church. And parents fall over themselves to try and get their kids into those church schools. So the parish school system developed. Guilds, or universitatis, were corporations formed by monks or cathedral chapters, merchants, craftsmen, and they were granted charters often by emperors, kings, popes. And they were largely free from church control. They were often supported, they often supported uh, priests and others to teach in the school. And so there you had, in a sense, the birth of the independence of the university because they were less controlled by the church. And this is the origin of our modern degrees, our bachelor's degrees, our master's degrees, our writing of theses, Master's degrees would have been the equivalent to our doctoral degrees uh, today. There you have the origin of our university system. And the two primary types of university were the University for Law and Medicine and the University for Theology for Religion, in a sense equivalent to what we might call a seminary today. And you found these two uh, different emphases in different parts of Europe. So Law and Medicine were those, the universities that stressed law and medicine were in southern Europe, and the church tended to govern the theologically orientated universities in the north. You had the university at Bologna, it was a school of law and medicine, and then Paris had a religious focus. Those are two early examples. And their curriculum was the seven liberal arts, both universities. This is going back close to a thousand years, <laughs> a liberal arts curriculum. Now, you fast forward to the Reformation, and you find the likes of John Calvin and Martin Luther, and in, in uh, Calvin's case, the establishment of the Genevan Academy, which was divided into two schools. So a private school taught children up to the age of 16, and the public school served as the university in Geneva. Luther and Calvin, by the way, both supported subsidized universal education for boys and girls on the Hebrew and early church model. This is what they were about. Their successors, the Puritans and other evangelicals in England and Europe and America, shaped modern education in terms of what we would call educational Calvinism throughout the Western world. Throughout England and her colonies, these Christians began elementary schools. They began great universities. The entire systems of education in North colonial America were developed because of these people. Durham was founded by Oliver Cromwell. Harvard was founded by the Puritans and so on. And they naturally stressed the authority of Scripture. And in stressing the authority of Scripture meant literacy and education were paramount. Moreover, because their vision of the gospel was much more than Jesus forgave my sins and I'm going to heaven, but actually included a society ruled by the word of God, universal education to train the young in this understanding of life was obviously a top priority. They wanted it to be universal. No less than the modern state wants its education to be universal. Why? Because it wants to govern the future. It wants to shape the future. It wants to def define the society of the future. 
This legacy in Christian education continues right up to this day, and a review of the history of modern education before the state took over at the end of the 19th century, which they were latecomers to the field of education, sees the family, the church, and school in cooperation to educate and train the child. Now, that's a very brief but accurate survey of the centrality of education to the gospel in the history of the Western world. Now, let's consider then the seriousness of that mandate, lest we be tempted to think, well, that's a nice optional extra. You know, glad the church did that, and literacy and printing and universal education, that's a nice byproduct, but, you know, maybe we don't need to be quite so Christian now that we've got the point. Well, the scope of the gospel and the history of the church together testify to the, so those two points, the scope of the gospel, the history of the church's application of the gospel, testify to the central importance of Christian education and raising children in the faith. In the gospels, Jesus makes clear the seriousness of misleading the young to their own ruin, doesn't he? In fact, having set a child in front of the disciples and highlighting the need for childlike humility, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, verse 6. That's a very serious statement. The term actually here translated stumble in the Greek is the word scandalizo, scandalizo. And it means to mislead and throw someone unawares into ruin. So anything that deliberately misleads a child toward ruinous sinful conduct in Jesus' assessment is scandalous. Then it will have serious sanctions, he says. At the very least, Christians then must be faithful in education and make their voice heard when the young and vulnerable are deliberately led astray. Now, let's take that term scandalizo for a moment. I think that's a fairly appropriate term for events in recent weeks in Ontario that have ignited regarding efforts of the provincial government to reintroduce its lurid sex ed curriculum in the public schools. That includes, among other things, teaching six-year-olds consent, sexual consent, and by 12 teaches them the intricacies of homosexual relations. And my eldest daughter is about to turn 13, so she'd have already had this instruction by now. The charge to enforce this culturally Marxist propaganda based on postmodern literary theory as well on the ordinary lives of unsuspecting children in the province is being led by our premier, Kathleen Wynne, whose moral authority for guiding how children should understand the family and human sexuality is non-existent from a Christian point of view, especially when one actually examines her own life example and what actually happened in her own personal life. When she entered into, uh, abandoned her marriage and entered into a lesbian relationship and sent her husband down to the basement to live, which says other things about the family, of course, but we won't go into that. Sadly, the rabbit hole goes even deeper in this case, though, because the former deputy education minister, Benjamin Levin, who repeatedly acknowledged his role in overseeing the curriculum development, was recently charged with seven porn-related, child porn-related offences. Now, I've sat with some of my neighbours who are not Christians on my own street, 
one of whom is a nominal Muslim, the other is a, a, a Greek Orthodox nominal uh, believer. And they're totally against all of this. But they don't know what to do or how to combat it. The former University of Toronto professor, Mr. Levin, and member of Kathleen Wynne's transition team as she took office, has recently pled guilty to three child porn-related charges, including making written child porn, counselling a person to commit sexual assault, and possession of child porn. According to Joe Warmington, writing for a Toronto newspaper, it's now clear from newsletters, memos, and other documents that Levin repeatedly insisted he was ultimately responsible for the educational materials and the new approach. On 6th of April 2009, he clearly states in a memo, this province-wide strategy has been a priority of our Minister of Education, Kathleen Wynne, and me. In short, a man guilty of serious sexual offences against children has declared that he was brought in to implement the new radical education policy, the Equity and Inclusive Education Strategy of 2009, which is embedded in the 2015 programme. Now, unless we uh, be uh, fooled into thinking there's no connection between a man's private life and his, his agenda and his vocation, we need to examine scripture on that. The Bible very clearly makes a connection between as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. These individuals who have gladly walked out the front of our pride marches in Toronto are those who have shaped what is to be taught to the little ones in public schools. That's scandalizo. Now, how are we to account for, as Christians, for the widely accepted promotion of a queer revolution, as they're calling it, as the uh, intellectuals call it in our culture? Such brazen efforts to rationalize moral degeneracy within the social order actually finds its root in a theological reality. And that reality is the problem of guilt. Political reality and educational programs, you must remember, are at root theological in nature. They are theological in nature inescapably. People living in habitual and unrepentant sexual immorality and sin in contravention of God's word, whoever they are, whatever their office, face a persistent problem, gnawing guilt. That's the reality of the human condition. It's been called, guilt has been called the cornerstone of all neuroses. Just because you try and ignore God and his word doesn't mean people don't face the problem of guilt in their lives. That situation is intolerable unless you justify it, unless you justify sin. You need justification, and there are only two ways in which men and women seek justification in the, in the face of guilt. The first is through the atonement of Jesus Christ, because atonement means covering. How can sin be covered? How can it be atoned for? How can it be put away? But outside of Christ, how can you atone for sin? How can one justify oneself to remove gnawing guilt? Well, the favored form of self-justification in our culture is the social rationalization of sin, especially through the educational process. And this is attempted by the subversive process of calling evil good and good evil, by redefining the moral order. 
Having then progressively redefined moral truth in a manner that condones, normalizes, and supports sin, social justification is within reach. Because what you're looking for is not, at this point, justification before God, but social justification. So that the sense of guilt that one feels is alleviated. However, what must be eliminated is any potential rebuke of the new morality. For to permit rebuke threatens the security of the rationalization which keeps personal and public guilt at bay. You have to secure the space for the rationalization to hold. This is why the widespread practice of the media and progressive cultural elite is to demonize all opposition to the new morality as evincing mental phobias, psychological oppression, and hatred. That's why people are afraid to speak. They're afraid to uh, express opposition. They're afraid to write about it, comment on it, challenge people about it. Consequently, anyone who opposes the new materials are condemned as suspect, subhuman violators of human rights. Despite the fact that the program wishes to teach grade three students the absurd contradiction of sex and gender, teach grade seven students about oral and anal sexual conduct without any mention of STIs and the risk of those, and normalize every aberrant sexual expression with six gender identities, it nonetheless omits any form of reference to the scourge of internet pornography. Yet parents or critics who object to any of this are objects of ridicule. Now, from the standpoint of the gospel, the only way you can account for this kind of attitude this determined desire to cause little ones to stumble, scandalizo, is a deep-seated need for self-justification by the rationalization of sin. That's the only way you can account for this. Modern society must justify its sin, its rebellion against God. We've been set on a course of rebellion against God. There are social consequences for that, and there are personal consequences to it. And one of the primary ones is personal guilt. That's part of the reality of God's grace in the world is that, that, that unrepentant sin, habitual unrepentant sin, has all kinds of consequences in people's lives, and one of them is guilt, no matter how they try and escape it. So if the children are made participants in the practice and social approval of sexual sin, guilt, which they falsely believe must be a social construction... So they think that guilt, for example, the, those who seek to promote uh, pedophilia now, say that it is merely a, so, a socially constructed um, rejection of the sexualization of children. And if we eliminated that um, social construction that somehow that contact is wrong, children wouldn't experience any negative results from it. That's their argument. Because they see guilt as purely something which is socially constructed. So they imagine that if you sexualize and have children participate in these things, they imagine their guilt will disappear. Because a culture emerges that doesn't see those things as wrong. The God-defined family, though, is a living, breathing rebuke to sexual perversion and so must be destroyed as the normative pattern, hence the desire for a queer revolution. You can't allow the normative pattern to stand because the normative pattern makes everybody else look bad and feel guilty. 
Hence the desire to eliminate in the classroom references to husband and wife, mother and father. This also means that the true church, being a purveyor of the old morality, must be silenced, must be marginalized and forced to support the rationalization. There must be gay marriage, for example. The church must recognize it. Uh, bishops of that stripe must be ordained, and so on. The church must support the rationalization to secure space for sin and immorality to be supported publicly and approved. Children must be reprogrammed by state indoctrination away from the old morality and the normative family model. That's the goal. And they must be indoctrinated to celebrate sexual perversion. A teacher wrote to me just yesterday saying that they just had a pink day at their school and they were all required to wear their rainbow pins and she didn't and she was asked why she wasn't and was viewed very dimly because she wasn't wearing the required pin. How long before such people are not even allowed to teach? The word of God is plain that such things though do not alleviate guilt in people, they compound it. The Bible teaches, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5, 20. It's a dreadful thing to fall under the censure of the King of kings and Lord of lords, for it is not liberation that follows scandalizo according to Christ, but only the fearful depths. The churches, therefore, have to remain faithful in their call, to repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15, and to its historic mandate with children who must once again become those who are taught to observe all things that I have commanded you. I want to conclude here with some comments about the demise of Christian education and then the hope of the gospel in my last few minutes. Let me just summarize what we've said for a moment to bring it back to your remembrance. First, in the historic Christian perspective of Christendom, we have seen that three institutions in particular have a teaching mandate. The first is the family. That's clear everywhere in Scripture. The family is required to teach. From the biblical view, the essential function of both the family, the church, and the academy, those are the other two teaching institutions, the church and the academy, essential to their function is the work of instruction and the careful catechesis of the young. So the family is required to raise children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, Proverbs 22, 6, Ephesians 6, 4. The church also has a clear mandate to teach, 2 Timothy 4, 2, Matthew 28, 20, and to disciple. Moreover, we have seen the school or academy has been part of Jewish and later Christian culture for the young since around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Scripture, we actually even find a school of prophets in uh, 2 Kings 2, 5 and 6, 1. School of the Prophets. We've seen that the university was also a direct development of the calling of the Christian church and has been called the last medieval institution. And the purpose of all of this was to develop God-centered instruction, the curriculum of Christ. It's no surprise then that widespread literacy, printing, universal education were all a direct product of Christian labor. But when these institutions fail to teach biblical faith and life, the cultural results are dramatic. They're devastating. 
It's evident to any observant Christian, for example, that the assault on a Christian form and content of education in all these institutions is well advanced and in many quarters is being subverted for pagan indoctrination. Let me illustrate this very recently from the um, de uh, church developments in the U.S., the apostasy of the church. Another Protestant denomination is again rejoicing in its own inevitable demise, the Presbyterian Church USA. Nearly 1.8 million members. It's the largest Protestant group in the U.S. Rather, it's become the largest Protestant group in the U.S. so far to ratify ceremonies and rights for same-sex unions in the name of marriage just a couple of weeks ago. This represents the abandonment of biblical teaching for families. Marriage for these apostate believers is now being defined as, quote, a unique commitment between two people. Not a binding covenant between a man and a woman root, uh, for life rooted in the teaching of Genesis 2 and 3. So if the church abandons its teaching mandate, the family is exposed and misled, and of course the school will follow suit. Given that education was in the hands of the church, you first need apostasy in the church to lose education. Apostasy in the church results in apostasy in the family, which results in apostasy in education. In Canada, in the Ontario Education Act, if you can believe this, regarding the duties of a teacher, there remains a requirement to teach religion and morals. In it, we read that a teacher in the schools is required to, and I quote now from the Education Act, inculcate by precept and example respect for religion and the principles of Judeo-Christian morality and the highest regard for truth, justice, loyalty, love of country, humanity, benevolence, sobriety, industry, frugality, purity, temperance, and all other virtues. And yet, as we have noted, Ontario and Western education generally is forcing this radically, culturally Marxist, even pagan program on parents that has utter disdain for the principles of Judeo-Christian morality, and in teaching, gender identity has no regard for truth, justice, purity, or humanity. And it's not just Ontario that it's catechizing in the new faith. Just recently, Alberta, in the last few weeks, the legislature there has unanimously passed a law forcing private Christian and other religious schools to set up clubs for homosexuals known as gay-straight alliances. So if a student in a school, public or private, wants one of those alliances, it can have it. Now, one of the errors, I think, in Alberta is that uh, private schools accept public money, and they feel that they've got a greater reach when a private school is receiving a certain amount of public money. At the same time, a uh, provision for parents to remove their children from classes discussing these things has been removed. So if you don't want... You're, you're in a private school, a Christian school... There is a, the forcing of these alliances on the school. And if, um, uh, in, and in the public schools, if a parent is not happy with what's going on in the classes and wants to remove them from certain instruction about sexuality, they're being denied the right to do so. Historically, in Quebec, education was a family and private matter with church support long before the state ever got involved. But today, Quebec, Quebec has forced its secular ethics into all the schools. Indeed, one Catholic school had to go all the way to the Supreme Court just to get permission to teach Catholic values along with the secular ones. Now, because the foundations of our education were set deep in the Christian faith, 
invariably we find the root of educational troubles in the apostasy of Christianity. In Ontario, the tone was set in public education by the devout Methodist Egerton Ryerson, who laid the early philosophical foundations of the public school system. However, his political liberalism was severely tainted by rationalistic tendencies that he got from the Enlightenment, from the tradition of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, the thought of the Enlightenment, is simply the religion of unbelief. So the degree to which you're impacted by Enlightenment rationalism is the degree to which unbelief has been introduced into your philosophy of life. Man's reason in Enlightenment thought always trumps revelation. It always trumps revelation. It led in the Western world from Christianity to Unitarianism, which was at the root of the American public school system, by the way, deism, and finally to atheism and open paganism. Man's faith in reason, denying the effect of sin upon human nature, always then produces an intolerant tolerance, which is what we have in our time. Man says his reasoning, his thinking, his ideas always trump revelation, which is, by the way, why in the hierarchy of rights, um, uh, sexual minority rights always trump religious freedom because it's man's idea that must trump revelation. Religious freedom of, of, of the right, the freedom to believe certain things about God is seen as merely private religious belief based on revelation, whereas ideas about sexuality today are considered revelation from, of man's idea, right? The, the, these must trump biblical revelation. And because it views it as, it, it produces an intolerant tolerance because viewing the triune God and his sovereignty as irrational, it seeks to replace the word of God with man's word. And so it becomes logically intolerant of what it refuses to believe. So to expect tolerance of Christianity and of Christian sexual ethics in our time is obviously a stretch. <laughs> At the very least, it's a stretch. Ryerson's idealism led him to the conviction that corruption and flaws in human beings, a creature perfectible by education, would be overcome by the moral suasion of the state school. They were almost utopian in their ideas about what, publication, uh, what public education could achieve. The goal was to create useful members of a universal society whereby social redemption could occur, creating a kind of heaven on earth. They thought it would defeat sin, defeat crime, and so on. This, Ryerson thought, was attainable by a non-denominational Christian curriculum that would offend no one. He was wrong about that. As a kind of universalist, Ryerson was a social engineer who was actually opposed to the faith of the Reformation and as such laid the groundwork for the eventual loss of Christian education to progressivism. And in fact, R.D. Gidney's study of 1975 into the condition of education in Upper Canada prior to the advent of public schools shows that academic standards were already much better than public education reformers were claiming and that the public schools did little to improve the situation. Nobody likes to quote that study much these days. The present decline of education and rates of functional literacy are witness to the failure of the education system that aims less at education than it does at social conditioning today. 
And that's why the war is on about this educational curriculum, because it's about social conditioning. It's about social engineering. It's not really about education. This highlights the important role, not just of the church, in teaching God's word then faithfully to families, which is why the church must not apostatize on this issue of our time, the critical issue of our time. It will be, and it is becoming, the benchmark of the divide between biblical Christianity and liberalism. Parents must carefully instruct their children in God's word, but also it highlights the centrality of the Christian school and the academy in advancing education rooted in the sovereignty and government of God. True education gets the foundation of life and thought correct. If there's going to be true education in our time, it must get the foundation of life and thought correct. If it goes wrong there, it goes wrong everywhere. And that foundation is that man is created in God's image. He's, man's, he's God's image bearer. That Christ is Lord. But that man is a fallen sinner. Now, because Christ is creator, redeemer, and king, Scripture says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Revelation, then, must again be made basic to education if we would labor in terms of the gospel. And that's been the fundamental problem. For too long, we've thought, well, a neutral education, and I've dealt with that previously. 18 months ago, I talked about the myth of neutrality. That's why I haven't gone there today. I didn't want to deal with another philosophical problem. But that is the core of the issue. We've not seen it in terms of revelation and the gospel, because if education is in terms of the gospel, it's also in terms of God's ordained future, not man's. It's not the social salvation of man by man that we aim at in education. (laughs) It's the glory of God and the extension of God's kingdom. Through true education that gets the foundation of education correct. And that leaves us with the glorious hope of the gospel. And with this thought, I conclude in my last five minutes now. The Psalms are actually very clear that children have a key role in God's glorious purposes for the gospel. Have you ever noticed that Psalm, Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus actually quotes this passage, does he not, in the New Testament? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have established strength because of your foes. The gospel makes plain that the Christ the Lord is in the process of having all his enemies made his footstool as he rules the nations. That's part of the gospel. We see it in Psalm 110.1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 2 tells us that all the nations are his inheritance. He must rule, Paul says, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So scripture indicates that one of the ways Christ stills and silences the enemy and avenger is through children. But how does God establish strength and silence his enemies through, through kids? Through children. How's that possible? What is an infant, a a child in elementary school, how do they silence the enemy and the avenger? 
Well, it happens by having them raised up and taught in the truth of the gospel for every area of life and thought. Because a generation of Christian children transforms the future. Because education is a plan for the future. And those that govern the minds of the youth determine the shape of the future. So God silences his enemies by the education mandate given in the Great Commission to teach all things he has commanded. That's how the enemy is stilled. Because God's plan for the future is established. When children are born, first of all, not killed in the womb, and are raised in a Christian home, that's, how, that's why the psalmist talks about children being like arrows in the quiver. He shall speak to his enemy in the gate. The gate is the place of government in the Old Testament. And those who had many sons <laughs> had a place of significance in the social order. And a, and a generation that has, a, 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 a church that has a generation of children raised in the gospel through Christian education, able like those kids in the school of Alexandria to engage all the philosophies of their time, it's through them that God stills the enemy. When children are raised to love God, not just with their hearts, but with all their minds, as scripture requires, where they are faithfully instructed in a biblical understanding of all of life and grow as true worshippers, God's ordained future emerges and thus his enemies with their false gospel are silenced. The enemy in the avenger is stilled by the strength of tomorrow sitting at small desks with the curriculum of Christ. Lorraine Boetner, the reformed theologian, has stated it this way. With this I'm closing. The parable of the leaven teaches the universal extension and triumph of the gospel. And it further teaches that this development is accomplished through the gradual development of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, like leaven, transforms that with which it comes into contact. Similarly, Christ teaches society is to be transformed by the kingdom of heaven and the result will be a Christianized world. We find that Christ's work of redemption truly has as its object the people of the entire world and that his kingdom is to become universal. Now that's the hope of the gospel. The Great Commission is the final phase of the dominion creation mandate after the resurrection. And central to it is education. And we abandon that task at our peril because to do so, I believe, is to abandon the gospel.